Hello, and welcome to Residential Spread. I'm Molly Slavin, and I am here with Corey Gergen. How are you, Corey? Hey, I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm doing great. Um, classes are over, and the semester is upon us. Feeling just very good about that. It's <laughs> just a semester that I feel really great about leaving behind me. Oh, God, same. Well, also with us today is Eric Lewis. How are you, Eric? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad how Corey finished that sentence. It was a semester I feel really great about leaving behind. Okay, now that makes sense to me. <laughs> the first part of that sentence I didn't follow, but that was the ending... a real they had us in the first half. <laughs> I am. I am thriving, y'all. I don't know what. I don't know what y'all have been doing. I am just. <laughs> well, over in linguistics, it's been a fantastic semester exactly exactly (laughs) um we've also got alex edwards how are you alex i'm i'm good um i'm also glad to be done with the classes portion of um the semester although i've i've entered a new um grading hellscape where apparently um not that i was you know directly told this by anybody but i learned that um technically my grades are due 48 hours after the students turn in their final. Oh, fun. With like no exception. So it's literally like you turn in a final and I have 48 hours to get all my shit in order and get the final grade in. Like regardless of when the final is or your cl- your classes just have late finals? No, regardless of when the final is. Oh my God. Oh. So I don't I love that. This, I thought this was like a quirk of scheduling for you. No, yeah. that's, that's- no. No, no, no. It's it's university-wide. So if your students have a Monday final, you have 48 hours to grade those finals. They have a Thursday final, you have 48 hours to grade those finals. Horrifying. Like, you don't even even get business days. Right. Oof. That's awful. It is horrifying. (laughs) So that's how I am. (laughs) Great. Um, We've also got Josh Cohen. And how are you, Josh? Same, same. Uh, if I lapse into telling you guys how to do your final portfolio formatting in Canvas, please forgive me. I have like 50 student meetings this week. So, uh, you know, if I, if I just start telling you how to format your, your portfolio pages, I know you'll, you'll forgive me for that. 50? Yeah, because I just tell them to meet with me individually and obviously not all of them do, but I just carve out time before they're, they're portfolios do because the ones who talk to me about it i'm like yep you're doing it wrong do it like this and the ones who don't it's like well sorry you had your chance to get some feedback so yeah well we're nearly there um but before that we have one final episode of res spread to record so on residential spread we talk about colleges and the coronavirus we analyze the decisions schools are making in response to the pandemic investigate how the existing structures of academia affect those decisions, and discuss what it's like to navigate higher ed during a pandemic as members of the precariat. Yeah, and we're in, you know, we're coming up on a winter break, but we're back uh, after an extended Thanksgiving break during which news broke of the Omicron variant. Uh, But that's just one of the many developments in the pandemic and in higher ed over the past month. Uh, a few, just a few others, uh, schools interpreted and began implementing Joe Biden's vaccine ba- mandate for the fe- for federal contractors in a wide range of ways, uh, only for a Georgia court to temporarily stay the measure 
the very week that it was supposed to go into effect. The AAUP, as promised, released their report that will form the basis of their decision on whether or not to censure the USG over its attack on academic freedom and tenure. Uh, the Faculty Senate at the University of Florida released a report on government interference that claimed, among other abuses, that UF researchers were, quote, pressured to, quote, destroy data about the pandemic and to, quote, avoid criticizing Governor Ron DeSantis. And a post-Thanksgiving COVID surge at the University of Maryland led the school to mass distribute KN95 masks and strongly encourage their use indoors. But despite all of this news and much of it bad, uh, little is really changing, uh, except maybe the U Maryland uh, mask distribution plan. <laughs> and so rather than spend a lot of time talking about these news stories that resulted in very little change, we kind of want to get at one of the reasons why these news stories are resulting in so little change. And that is a shift in language around coronavirus from conversations about a pandemic to conversations about an endemic. We want to discuss what it would mean for COVID to become endemic uh, and why this shift in the broader conversation uh, and the broader response to pandemic is causing us to sort of rethink how we're going to make this show going forward. Uh, but first, a temperature check. Yeah, as always, we, um, we, you know what, we say as always, and yes, as always on this show, but as we're speaking about endemic, um, mm. has anybody had their temperature checked before they were allowed to enter a place recently? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. I did, I did at the DeKalb County library by my house, which is mm. some, not super recently, but fairly recently reopened. Like they haven't been open for a year. Like mm. it's been maybe since the fall and they do have you, um, put your face up against one of those screens. My kids, my kids' daycare does it at every drop-off yeah, and pick-up. Yeah, daycare too. Yeah, yeah ex exactly. Mm, okay, okay. I mean, I'm glad to hear that because I haven't. I don't think anyone's taken my temperature. I mean, the yesterday when I picked my kid up, it measured at 96.4. So, like, clearly it's not. Yeah, it's so low. It's, <laughs> it's so inaccurate. They're almost worth it's It's hygiene theater, like we've talked yeah. about. Yeah. So oh, it absolutely times. is. I'm just, I'm just wondering if it was going to be hygiene theater that sticks around or not. Um, yes, I mean, of course, part of the joke is that um, part of the joke of calling it the temperature check here is that it's, um, it doesn't checking people's temperatures doesn't do anything. We've known that, so, <laughs> you know, I don't know, month two. Anyway, regardless, um, I would always have to get my temperature checked at the dentist when I would go because I had this like dental emergency um, during the pandemic pre-vaccine. Pre I had this dental emergency I had to go get handled um, and it would never read my temperature when held to my forehead because my bangs were always in the way. So like hair apparently just same at my kids daycare i always have to push my bangs out of the way i love bangs as this impenetrable barrier <laughs> <laughs> i'm honestly surprised i haven't seen like a thread on twitter about how you should grow out your bangs to evade uh oh like, big government overreach on covid <laughs> Oh, I'm glad we can laugh about that because our temperature for today is very depressing. Um, our temperature check, a number that tells us something about the um, state of COVID in the U.S. and higher ed, et cetera, et cetera. Our number for today is 800,000. 
Um, so according to the New York Times just recently, um, we're having a bit of a post-Thanksgiving holiday spike in um, cases and deaths. So right now we're averaging 1,275 deaths per day, according to the New York Times, which means that um, at this pace, in the next week or so, uh, we're going to cross 800,000 dead from COVID in the United States. Um, and we haven't really checked in on this number um, of cumulative deaths in a while on the show. So uh, how are we feeling about this? Well, that number's definitely larger. Um, it it absolutely, absolutely is. No, no. We've crossed, we've crossed a million at this point. I feel fairly confident in saying. Mm. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like the number's larger than even we know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's certainly an undercount. I, yeah. I would yes. put money on the number being over a million already. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I was just I, thinking it's larger than the 200,000, which I think is the last one we talked about, um, which, you know, as much as I make fun of math majors, they really have something there with that exponential growth thing, you know? I feel like it's not just the last time we've talked about it. I mean, that's the last time I remember that number being an important part of the popular COVID conversation. Like, I think people have just kind of set aside the issue of cumulative deaths because now the issue is all, <laughs> again, looking forward to stuff we're going to be talking about throughout this episode. It's all about off ramps. It's all about how many people are dying right now. Like, I think people no longer care about the total number of deaths because they're just thinking, when is this over? I think, was it 600,000 that they put the flags on the National Mall? We hit some, we hit some, I think it was, it was 500 or 600,000 and they put all those tiny flags on the wall right. in DC. I forgot about that. Yeah. So, but yeah, you're right. Like we keep blowing by these numbers and, and even regardless of the undercounting, I mean, by this time next year, we're going to be talking about 1 million official deaths. Mm -hmm. Like we can certainly say it's likely higher, but it, we only need to average like 540 deaths per day for the next year to hit a million officially, which is absolutely staggering. And I, yeah, I feel like I, I haven't even processed the 700,000 and we're at 800,000 because like you said, Alex, with ex exponential growth, like we're each hundred thousand is taking less time. We mm -hmm. get there faster. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just checked the number because I was interested to kind of do a comparison. I know it's not one to one, but just for the record, um, the total death toll in the United States from the 1918 flu pandemic um, topped out at 675,000. So we've now blown past that record as well. So that sucks. A lot. A lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I guess to to transition a little bit. Um, I mean, what we kind of wanted to talk about with this sort of last episode of, of the year um, is, is this idea of endemic COVID, which it's sort of hard to really think about endemic COVID in the face of, of, of that number and, and that sort of continued daily toll, right? The, the, mm -hmm. We're at what 1275 a day, you said. Mm -hmm. um, but people keep wanting to have this endemic conversation. Um, and I think 
I think the idea of endemic COVID is is one of the reasons why, despite this, you know, post Thanksgiving spike slash winter spike, right? A lot of the increases are in the Northeast, where it's already getting uh, much colder, um, uh, and you know, all of this other, you know, news of like, you know, researchers destroying um, data uh, and, and, and things like that. Um, I think this idea of endemic COVID has kind of just like led to even more inertia uh, than there was before, just like a refusal to really change behavior. Um, and some of this is 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 fairly explicit. Um, it's 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 sort of a conservative talking point that endemic COVID means we should stop, uh, you know, taking any mitigation measures. Um, particularly in the UK, I've seen. Um, uh, Dr. Eli David, this is a tweet from I think yesterday. Excess mortality is back to 2019 normal almost everywhere, which I don't think is true, but whatever. Uh, pandemic has ended. COVID is now endemic. COVID measures are no longer about public health. They are all about power-hungry bureaucrats and corrupt politicians. Um, Allison Pearson at The Telegraph uh, similarly tweeted, Omicron, can, this is about you know, news that Omicron is, is somewhat deterred by existing uh, vaccines, particularly um, people who have gotten booster shots. Uh, Omicron cannot evade the vaccine. The COVID pandemic is over. We have moved to the endemic state, end quote. But, I, you know, it's it's a, it's a little bit more, uh, it's it's less finessed in, in sort of the voice of, of conservatives, but I think uh, moderates and, and other folks uh, use a similar kind of language, or they're making a similar kind of argument when they talk about things like the danger of forever masking. Um, did you all see from like early November, Amanda Marcotte's piece in Salon or her multiple Twitter threads about it? She's so easy to dunk on. I almost <laughs> go on, please do. I, I, well, I just, I actually follow her on Twitter because every once in a while she has a good take on usually abortion that I'm like, okay, that was well said. Um, but it's just, um, she has a lot of brain worms. Um, and I think, <laughs> and I think in particular, the tweet you might be referencing is the one where she's like, people have tried to convince us that masking is no big deal, but I can't work out in one as if like, <laughs> boom, done. <laughs> that is, that is, that is, that is one of the, one of the tweets. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, she then connects her inability to work out in a mask to the difficulties of teaching in a mask. Um, Which I'm happy to tell her is not as bad as she seems to think it is. But it's, okay. you know, I don't love it, but no, it's, I don't love it. But I prefer it to COVID. Um, I've done it every, you know, every day for yeah. four months, and yes. still here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, Molly, you mean you haven't um, had so much decreased oxygen to your brain that you've died? Uh, not yet, no. But you know. I guess it could all become catching up with me in the next week or so. So stay tuned. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> well, we have, we have the winter break to recover and just like breathe our own air for a while. That's um, right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, that was like one of the things, but she also like falls into similar constructions. Uh, she doesn't use the word endemic uh, because I think she's smart enough to know that we're not at that stage yet. And I think we can talk a little bit more about, what that stage would look like in a, in a little bit, but she says things like, "We cannot sleepwalk into permanent mask mandates. Uh, we need to grow up and have real conversations about how forever mask is not tenable." 
Uh, we need I would to pass just like out. to know, I, my question for all of these, not necessarily all of these people, but particularly the people who are talking about like forever masking and off ramps and shit like that. My question is, have any of them ever in their lives spoken to an Asian person? Right. Right? Like, this this really particular, like, cultural insistence that, I, like, I'm trying to figure out how to formulate it. It's this, like, American exceptionalism thing where it's like, well, I we're just so, the masks are, we can't do it forever. We just can't do it forever. No one can. The whole world cannot handle this. And it's like, you motherfuckers, like, you know, there are other people in other countries, right, who have, like, a different sense of this culturally and they just do it and they don't fucking have a hissy fit about it all the time i was reading a book that had been translated from japanese that was written in like the 90s and it was i was reading it like last week and a character and it's quit is sick so he takes him to the doctor and he just casually mentions like the kids in their masks in the waiting room and i was like oh right other parts of the world just do this like Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah, they and they also have never spoken to a disabled person, right. um, you know, uh, who many of some of whom uh, are at higher risk, you know, based on other people's behaviors, some of whom may, for various reasons, wear masks all the time when in public as well. Yeah, um, it's just a very I, I just find those rhetorical moves to be particularly infuriating. The sort of idea that the real conversation that we need to have as grownups is about when we can take off masks. It's not about those numbers, right? It's not about, um, you know, 700,000 dead and, and rising. Um, it's not about 1,200 deaths per day. It's about, you know, when can we take the masks off? Off-ramp is another one that we've talked about on the show before. This sort of like way of framing this as, necessarily temporary right yeah well it's i mean the question really becomes when can this stop um inconveniencing me personally yes right like that's what these people mean and the reason you know i hesitate to make too many sort of like broad claims um based on national kind of character culture or anything like that because we can really easily fall into stereotype and it just opens up a whole racist can of worms and I absolutely don't want to do that but you know there's something to that like American insistence on individualism Um, and I think Britain as another country that you know for one thing has this whole horrible legacy of colonialism and racism, et cetera, et cetera, um, but also a place where neoliberalism has hit really hard. And neoliberalism, of course, being all about this kind of like ch- moving the the responsibility of everything, offloading it all onto the individual, right? Um, and so it's just, it's so like clear when you look at it in that sense, right? That, that like, you're not talking about people who are, are talking about, oh no, what if we get into forever masking and we can't handle that? They're not talking about the collective good. They're not talking about like collectively, we need to make choices that are good for all of us. They are talking about individually, I feel inconvenienced by this thing. And therefore it's the worst oppression I can imagine. 
and I must stop it somehow, you know? Well, and I mean, why not just talk about vaccination rate? Like if you want a timeline, we're at 60% vaccinated. So when we can stop doing this is when everybody's vaccinated. If you want something productive to think about, like work towards that, not this like vague sense of like, we'll never know when this is over. If we are like, again, to truly get endemic, it's going to be when virtually everyone is vaccinated and there's only tiny pockets for the virus left to circulate. Right. And of course, that applies overseas as well. And kids under five included, even though the FDA FDA seems committed to moving as slowly on that as humanly possible. Right. Uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that same like sort of individual focus that Alex was was talking about is like hurts our ability to think about vaccines in terms of um, population. Right. There's sort of a lot of discourse around, you know, everybody who wants a vaccine at my school can get one. So why should I have to wear a mask for the people who won't get one? Right. Ignoring that many people live at home with people who are under five. Right. Or various other reasons why a person might be vaccinated and still want to wear a mask. Or want you to wear a mask so you don't breathe your nasty fucking germ breath all over them. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what I meant. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. well, the good news is all of our institutions and all of our employers are already acting like it's endemic. So that's um, fabulous for all of us. Yeah. 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 Do, do we want to talk about what endemic actually means or what it would look like? Uh, I would like to. <laughs> I, I'm very intrigued by uh, a reference in the run sheet to your talking about the <laughs> OED. <laughs> do not, do, don't. Don't encourage this. Um, <laughs> so I've, so the, one thing that I noticed in sort of like digging into this a little bit is that there's not like a hard number on like when something becomes endemic, right? It's sort of, there's like a level of predictability to case numbers and sort of when they hit, right? The, the common cold is endemic, flu is endemic, right? There might be seasonal variations, but we tend to know what to expect. That seems to be like the baseline. Um, I've pulled a full a few quotes um, here. Uh, Fauci uh, says, um, "For to me, if you want to get to the get to endemic, you have to get to the level of infection so low that it doesn't have an impact on society, on your life, on your economy." End quote. Which I think that third one is interesting. Mm-hmm. Let's just say, um, uh, Yonkan Grad, uh, who is uh, an associate professor of immunology and infectious diseases at Harvard says the expectation that COVID-19 will become endemic essentially means that the pandemic will not end with the virus disappearing. The optimistic view is that enough people will gain immune protection from vaccination and from natural infection, such that there will be less transmission, much less COVID-19 related hospitalizations and death, and even as the virus, even as the virus continues to circulate. So it's it's this idea that like no one's putting a number on it, but it's less than what we have now, right? Um, uh, the economy is less affected than it is now if you're Fauci. Um, I thought I just saw an article today in The Atlantic about endemicity. Did any of you have a chance to read the Sarah Zhang piece? I thought yeah. she had a nice way of framing it um, as like an equilibrium. Endemic is now often used to describe the point where the virus's danger fades to the level of the few, flu or better yet the common cold. In its technical de- definition, though, endemic describes an equilibrium a point where the immunity gained in a population is balanced by the immunity lost. Immunity can be gained through vaccination or infection, 
and it can be lost through waning immune response, new variants, or population turnover as susceptible babies are born. Um, end quote. Anyways, I, I, I don't know if anybody has anything to say about these definitions or, you know, anything people want to point out. I just, I just think it's interesting that all of these voices are so, like, insistent that we are at uh, this point, and then all of these people who are talking about what that point is, they're like, yeah, it's it's less than what we need, where we're at, right? There's like no real clear number that means we're there, right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and it also, to me, raises the kind of idea of like, uh, so we've talked about this a little bit about like, you know, flu, like the, the yearly flu, right? Um, and how you know, part of the, the proof that we know that masks work is because the flu deaths were way, way down um, this, what was it, this past maybe two, at least the past, the one past flu season. I'm not totally sure. Um, yeah, last year it was like basically non-existent. Right, right. And and that's because, of course, as we were enacting all of these COVID protections, they mm -hmm. also had the benefit of preventing widespread transmission of the flu yes. um, and, and therefore leading to less deaths, right, or fewer deaths. Um, but so then you start to, like, when you start to unpack this and think about it, then what comes to my mind is like, well, wait a minute, should we, should we be accepting how many flu deaths we normally have, right? Like, or is that a sign that, that that health problem, public health problem, um, is, you know, really causing these tragedies that could be prevented? Yes. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, from there, you can just spiral into, like, do we even actually have anything like public health here, um, <laughs> particularly in the United States, you know, when health insurance is a goddamn nightmare and gun deaths are, are an absolute, you know, catastrophe and, and cancer from, you know, exposure to radiation and and. Uh, yeah, you could just go on and on from there. Like, <laughs> I mean, you're asking us to be capable of like learning a single thing, which I'm not <laughs> sure that we are. Yeah, I'm, yeah. If anything about the history of this country has taught us, I think. <laughs> I talk about it to my students a lot in terms of um, thinking, like asking questions about how we organize society, right? Mm. And, and instead of like just accepting that the way we do it is the only way we could do it to like really ask questions about how do we organize society now? What does it lead to? And how could we do it in different ways that could ameliorate those problems, right? Um, and so, yeah, it spirals out into this whole, once we start to say like, maybe, <laughs> maybe we're actually not doing enough um, to prevent these other, you know, health healthcare related tragedies, it spirals out into an entire like, we should probably just burn the whole country down and give all the land back. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to like, I'm, I'm telling a story about a Twitter interaction I had months ago, but like there was a tweet that got like semi-viral about like the risks of driving a car on a highway are greater than the risks of dying of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so therefore we should stop mitigating anything. And like, 
my thought was maybe the lesson of this is that we should drive fewer cars. <laughs> like, yeah, yes. uh, right. Like, uh, yeah. Jesus uh, Christ, that one, that one drives me crazy. Like, cars are so bad and so dangerous and so and, violent. <laughs> and our acceptance of that risk was like the result of a number of like you know, basically propaganda campaigns, right? Like the yeah. word jaywalker exists to make us okay with people walking in public streets getting killed by cars. And I just taught my students this yesterday because I taught a course on car cultures this semester. Um, our, our, our deaths on the roadway, and by ours, I mean America's deaths on roadways from January to June of this year. So the six, the six months, the first six months of 2021, Mm-hmm. More pe- more Americans have died on roads than have in the entirety of the EU in the past decade. And the population oh of the EU is a third larger than it is in America. Oh, my God. Well, there are. And one of the reasons is EU traffic engineers. Well, first, I mean, first and foremost, Europeans drive, uh, Europeans drive fewer cars than we do, which is first and foremost. But also European mm-hmm. traffic engineers, like, pay attention to, like, things um and like design roads in ways that aren't actively dangerous <laughs> um, <laughs> um but yeah I, I, it our our perhaps the takeaway is that our oh, that's also far far too high not to mention we take mitigation methods for driving <laughs> <laughs> it's like when will be free when will we be free from this forever seatbelt wearing regime <laughs> When can I simply hop into my car and just peel out without glancing in my rearview mirror? Why do I keep having to check these mirrors and wear these seatbelts? Like, we do all this stuff to make roads safer. And, of course, we still end up killing tons of people for a variety of reasons. But I can't believe, Josh, that you are suggesting that we should just be okay with the idea that we need a driving passport in order to be able to (laughs) access vehicular spaces. That's right. That's right. Driving passports, you got to show them, you got to carry them on your person. Which is also way too lenient. It is insane you let 16-year-olds drive cars. <laughs> I'm sensing myself getting on my soapbox, so I will step down. <laughs> but this this actually, I'm going to take this opportunity to transition to the OED, uh, since Eric is so excited for it. Um, so... Uh, one of the definitions for, I, I, we don't have to go to the OED to make this point, but I just want to stay on brand in this final episode. Um, uh, one of the definitions uh, of endemic is, uh, has nothing to do with disease at all. It's just simply prevalent in a certain country. Um, and one of the examples that the OED pulls uh, is from Charles Darwin, who is talking about bees, which may visit exotic flowers as readily as the endemic kinds. And I think that that mm-hmm. like endemic being the opposite of exotic is really telling. And I think it speaks a little bit to like why it's become such a like repeated phrase in the like anti-mitigation, like conservative movement or whatever, because if this disease is endemic, right. Then it's something we're used to. It's something we're accepting. It's a level of risk that, that we're accepting. And of course, right. Um, this is very different from how a lot of these same circles were talking about COVID two years ago, right? When they were um, using all kinds of like racist epithets around it, right? Um, but once it becomes endemic, it becomes um, like, yeah, it, it, it becomes like cars, right? It's a risk that no one could possibly imagine challenging, right? So I think that's one of the reasons why 
it's it's been seen as such a valuable term for for people making these arguments, I guess. That isn't where I was expecting you to go with the OED reading, but I think that's really useful uh, to go back to our episode about zero COVID and the weird nationalism and the weird celebration of the failure, quote unquote, mm-hmm. of zero COVID policies in other countries. Like, mm-hmm. I think there's this idea that <laughs> now COVID is endemic here and we are strong enough and brave enough and grown up enough to accept that we aren't going to keep we we aren't some overly bureaucratic overly paternalistic country that is going to try and prevent further covid we're going to embrace it and live with it and thrive with it mm-hmm. yeah uh, so i think there is this like we've taken on covid covid is part of the american experience but in a weird good way i guess yeah, it's like it's like part of our like gritty uh <laughs> yeah, right. It's 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 a thing that we're willing to risk for the good of the economy or or whatever. Our manifest destiny is partially mm-hmm. surviving COVID <laughs> without yes. mitigating factors. <laughs> yes. Hmm. <laughs> I like don't I'm like Oh, oh, I hate it here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, like all I can say (laughs) after that is like, yeah, that's fucked up. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so, I mean, one of the things we wanted to touch on briefly then was like what if if now the United States is going to pretend that COVID is simply endemic instead of being pandemic, um, then what does it mean for higher ed going forward? What changes, what doesn't change? Um, what can we expect from the world of higher ed? Um, I'm, I'll am i say to come back to something we talked about in the introduction, I uh, haven't had time to dig into that University of Florida story because I was looking, I was digging into the AAUP report about Georgia. Um, but I'm, I'm like... I kind of don't know what to do with the idea that University of Florida researchers were told to destroy data about COVID. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. This is one of those, like, what's the thing you know that sounds like a conspiracy theory? <laughs> um, I don't care for it. I don't think it's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah. I will say there's a similar story out of, and I just double checked this so that I didn't like commit slander. Uh, uh, in Missouri, the, the Missouri Health Department commissioned a study on the effectiveness of mask mandates, and the report came back that mask mandates worked, and so they buried the report, and it like just leaked out like in the past week or so. So this is like Florida is not the only place where this is happening. I guess Missouri is the South. <laughs> Man, <Nah>, Missouri. <laughs> it's its own special little place, um, much like Texas. Tried to get my students to tell me whether or not Texas was the South, and none of them, not only did any of them, none of them wanted to weigh in, but none of them cared. They were like, this is dumb and not worth discussing. Mm. Um, And it was awkward. (laughs) Anyways. um, What was I going to say? Oh, right. So this reminds me to kind of maybe put these two things together. It reminds me a little bit of the AAUP censuring of um, LSU, right, for mm-hmm. um, uh, 
like, oh, I can't remember the exact details of the story, but I think they, they fired or, or in some way violated the academic due process of a researcher who had worked on um, researching Katrina and the levees and, and mm-hmm. what exactly had made things go so badly. Um, and when it, you know, the first they were touting his work, like, oh, we have, you know, these amazing geologists who work on real issues. And then the guy was like, hey, the Army Corps of Engineers fucked up. And they were like, oh, that's not, you're not allowed to speak in public. Don't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it makes me wonder if the AAUP will, I think I've seen something that they have responded in some way to the University of Florida thing. Um, But I guess I wonder what happens if... (laughs) all of these school systems go on the censure list just the entire southeast like yeah. the usg florida yeah yeah well and and hawaii as we we discussed in a previous episode right who are also um like redefining tenure or trying to redefine tenure i should say right and south carolina is now trying to follow georgia's model mm-hmm. um and so yep. the aaup has had to blast um, South Carolina recently as well. Yeah. Um, which, you know, I mean, it might, on the one hand, it might seem like this is small potatoes, right? Like, could we really invest a lot of time caring in academic freedom when we're still, you know, dying by the thousands per day? Um, but clearly, like, these things are not unrelated to one another, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like, the ability, the strength of higher ed institutions to be able to quash public communication of research knowledge um, is incredibly scary. And, and, you know, academic freedom and what the AAUP does is like the, a minimal defense against these things happening. Right. Yep. (sighs) So that's also depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, it seems like, and like, there's a part of this run sheet, and we've gone long enough that we need to do this. There's a part of this run sheet where I like, imagined us talking about like, what we would, what changes we would like to see uh, in in higher ed, but it's like almost, it seems beside the point to me to talk about it, because it seems like what is happening, right, is that um, politicians and like upper admin are closing ranks, Mm -hmm. right? And like, not letting this crisis go to waste, um, you know, cutting salaries, you know, yeah. uh, you know, attacking the fringes of academic freedom, sometimes just outright removing it, right? Um, sometimes doing it in in, in the background. Um, yeah, and then the schools themselves are just uh, returning to in-person instruction with like, I think blue states will probably continue to impl- implement mask and vaccine mandates and red states will only do so if and when a judge uh, reinstates Biden's um, mandate and then only for certain parts of the workforce, right? I don't know, maybe it has stepped on some, did somebody want to talk about things they want to see changed? No, no, I think <laughs> I don't mean to unilaterally do that. I just, I wrote that and then I was like, I don't have anything to say here. <laughs> No, I think you're right. And honestly, I think like the, I think part of the problem of having, I mean, it problem, one of the, the 
consequences of having done this show now for three semesters um, is that the moment where I could be excited about the idea that higher ed would change for the better um, yeah. ended probably about April, 2020. Right. right? Like yep. it, it has, it's so clear that there mm-hmm. is no version of coming out of this pandemic whenever it is that we actually do that. Um, mm-hmm there's no version of it that's going to make anything better structurally. Right. Yeah. I I think in April, 2020, I was really worried that we were going to be replaced with MOOCs, which is a very hilarious and wrong prediction. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, know, I I can see, we hear so much about automation. (laughs) Uh, yeah, well, so, I mean, I guess this might be a good way to pivot to, like, what's happening with the show going forward. Do we yeah. have any other last thoughts about endemic COVID? Uh, my last thought is, uh, <laughs> like, we have the very, um, what is it, like, provost diary entry concept of what did we learn from the pandemic? And it seems <laughs> like <laughs> we learned more specifically what we should be afraid of <laughs> or, like, what the horrible <laughs> things are that are coming. We didn't learn anything positive, necessarily. But <laughs> Yeah. We, le- we learned that what the provost wants, the provost is probably going to get, and it's probably not great. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess... Um, with regards to the show, I mean, yeah, I, Alex, I, I sort of feel the same way. Like, it's hard to, like, we opened the show with, like, a litany of news stories that I think had they happened in April 2020 would have been each their own episode. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it kind of feels like, what is there to say about it, right? Like, we, we would just be repeating things that we've said before. Um, so, you know, we're we're taking a break for winter break. We might take a little bit longer of a break this time than we did last winter break. Um, And I think what we want to do is maybe do kind of deeper dives uh, and do more sort of sustained um, conversations about sort of specific topics uh, that like will still be pandemic adjacent, but will be more about, I think the structure of higher ed and the practices therein. Mm -hmm. Is that, is that a fair way to put it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, so we have some ideas. I'm hesitant to name any of them because I don't want to yeah. promise, I want to promise anything yes. we can't <laughs> deliver on. Agreed. Um, but yeah, some some more sort of sustained um, looks into um, specific issues, and then more of a chance to um, you know get get interviews and and panel discussions and things like that um, yeah. on these more kind of um, focused topics so yeah yeah and so the delivery might it's it's not going to be weekly like it has been but we'll drop sort of clusters of episodes around topics basically when they're ready so stay subscribed if 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 you like the show um uh and you know we will be back when we're back i guess yeah with mini series with miniseries. That's yes. Thank you. That's the term that I was skipping for no reason. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Miniseries. Yeah. Uh, Josh, Eric, any other last thoughts? Well, knowing us, they'll probably be maxi series, but yes, I, <laughs> I co-sign your description there. I love a good maxi series. I, I, I think we're, we're innovating in the, uh, 
in the in the podcast podcast space. Jesus, okay. Uh, that might be our clue to Maybe. sign off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think so. I think so. Thanks, thanks, y'all, and thanks everybody for listening. Uh, have a great winter break, and we will be back when when we're back. <laughs>